You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we're going to take a trip back in time to 1950s Arlington, Virginia. Now, I've only been to Arlington a few times while chaperoning high school trips to Washington, D.C. So to say that I've been to Arlington, well, you know, that's a bit of an exaggeration. What it really was was that I'd been a passenger on a bus that dropped a group of us off in Arlington National Cemetery. Of course, we walked around for a bit and we got right back on the bus a couple hours later, which basically means I've never been to Arlington. But the story that I'm about to tell you took place there in 1951 during the construction of what was then called the Parkington Shopping Center. And that was some name dreamed up by some executives at the Hecht department store chain, and that was the company building the complex. Today, Hecht has been replaced by Macy's, the mall's been completely reconfigured, and of course it has a new name, the Boston Quarter Mall. But as I've already pointed out, I've never been there, so I really had no choice but to turn to Google Maps and use their street view to see what it looks like today. You know, it's kind of like going there without ever going there, if you know what I mean. In particular, I was able to see the exact location of where today's story took place. Now, if you were to go there today, all you'd see is an oversized garage entrance with lettering above it that reads, Loading and Delivery Access. But back in 1951, an elderly gentleman lived there in a shack that lacked all modern conveniences. But he had something that the builders of the mall desperately wanted. That was the plot of land on which the house resided. But he wasn't letting go of it that easily. So today I present to you the story of the poor rich man. It's kind of an underdog, you know, David versus Goliath type story. And sometimes this man would win, but at other times the system would beat him down. But at least in my opinion, I think he always came out on top in his own small way. I am Steve Silman, and welcome to the beginning of the 17th year of the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I grew up in a small town in the Catskill Mountains of New York State. And there were just two department stores in the entire county. That was a James William Monticello and a Sullivan's in Liberty. Now, both of those stores are long gone, and today the only department store in the entire county is a gigantic Walmart. And that sits right across the street from where that old James Way store stood. 
And well, it wasn't this particular Walmart that put James Way and Sullivan's out of business. I mean, they were both gone before Walmart came to town. They both definitely fell victim to their inability to compete with those larger chains. Now, prior to World War II, nearly every town had a shopping district, you know, a downtown. And they included many mom and pop type stores. And of course, some of those were so successful, they were able to develop into the larger department stores. But then after the war, people began to move out to the suburbs, so these stores really had no choice but to follow along. One of those department stores was the Hecht Company, which began in 1857 as a used furniture store in Baltimore, Maryland. Success allowed the store to not only expand its offerings, but also to move into bigger and better locations. It wasn't long before Hecht became a full-fledged department store. Then additional Hex stores were opened in New York City, in both Easton and Annapolis, Maryland, and what would become its flagship store that was in Washington, D.C. Then, in 1947, Hecht opened a large three-story department store in downtown Silver Spring, Maryland, and that lies just north of Washington, D.C. But at the time, some questioned Hecht's decision to open a store in the suburbs, but their bet paid off. In fact, it proved to be so successful that within a few years, they added a fourth story to the building. Basically, they needed more selling space. So Hick began to look around for a location to open a second suburban store. This time, they decided to head a bit south of Washington, D.C., and they found exactly what they were looking for. So in April of 1950, it was announced that Hex would open a store in Arlington, Virginia, and that was a locale whose population had nearly tripled in the preceding decade. And it would be a monster of a store. There'd be five floors, there'd be four above ground and a basement. And that would provide an estimated 250,000 square feet of selling space. Put that in the metric system, that's 23,225 square meters of selling space. That is a big store. A four-floor parking garage would provide space for an estimated 2,000 cars. They also planned to build and rent out 30 additional stores adjacent to the main building. And this is kind of unheard of at the time, but they were building an early shopping mall. And this was going to cost a lot of money. The project in total was estimated to cost $10 million. Adjusted for inflation, that's $118 million today. When the store finally opened on November 2nd in 1951, Heck claimed that construction included the installation of 400 branch telephones, $100,000 or about $1.16 million today worth of carpeting, $175,000 or $2 million today for cash registers, and $40,000 or about $463,000 today just for the chairs. At the time, this was the largest suburban department store in the entire United States. The store was built on a triangular 18-acre site, and much of it was once home to a sandlot ballpark. But the remainder was made up of homes that mostly belonged to poor African Americans. Initially, these homes were purchased at reasonable prices, but it wasn't long before the value of property in the area just began to skyrocket. And as with most large-scale projects like this, unexpected issues invariably arise. 
and that can introduce complications, delays, or possibly canceling the project in its entirety. These issues may stem from difficulties in securing project financing, navigating unexpected legal regulations, facing court challenges, and uh, you know, so on. The HECT project was no exception, but what set this situation apart was that a single individual stood in the way of its completion. That man was 85-year-old Reverend Harrison Galloway. At the time, he was living in a two-story shack at 604 North Randolph Street, which just happened to be one of the three streets that bordered the triangular plot on which the Hex store was being built. As for the value of his house, it was assessed in 1949 for $3,700. That's about $43,700 today. Of course, Heck didn't want the house. What they really wanted was the nearly one-acre parcel on which it was built. And Galloway wasn't against selling the property, but he wouldn't do so until Heck met his price. He demanded payment of $1,000 for every year he was alive. Let's say $1,000 per year for 85 years. Simple math. Quote, I know my price. It is $85,000 in cash with six months to vacate. Unquote. Adjusted for inflation, that would be a little over $1 million today. Wow. He told a reporter, quote, I've been offered $85,000 already, but I'm not going to sell to the fellows that talk to me. They wanted to pay me in stocks and bonds, and I want cash. And when I get my money, I'm going to build a church. Not here, but someplace in Arlington where lots of colored people can come and listen to the word of God. He went on. Another fellow said he'd give me 55000 cash, but I'm not going to sell unless I get $85,000 cash and six months to vacate. Then, with a bit of a smile, he added, I think I'll get it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Galloway made it clear that he was willing to wait them out. Quote, I've lived here 35 years and I'm not rushing to get out. I don't have any relatives. I live alone with my chickens and ducks. I don't have electricity, just a couple of oil lamps. I have a water pipe in the front yard, and I keep warm with an oil stove and a wood stove. My congregation keeps me in food. I have a garden, and I cook my own meals. I'm happy enough. Unquote. Now, the old congregation he's referring to were the 65 members of the Cedar Grove Baptist Church that once stood beside his home. He explained, quote, All the congregation moved away, so I tore the church down. He added, 
The church was never self-supporting. The people just couldn't do it. I supported the church. Little documentation exists regarding Harrison Galloway's early life, but I was able to piece together the following. Quote, I was born a slave baby in 1865 down in Orange County, Virginia. I started preaching when I was 15. Unquote. A check of the U.S. Census shows he was unemployed in 1910, did labor or some sort of street work in 1920, was active as a preacher in 1930, had a $100 income as a salesman of some sort of liniment in 1940, and by 1950 had effectively retired. And that just happened to be the same year that Hecht announced the construction of their new store. Galloway claimed that he and his wife Mary had purchased the now-valuable piece of property back in somewhere around 1916 for $300. That's around $8,500 today. He first built a small home for the couple to live in, and after that he constructed his church. Sadly, Mary died at age 60 on March 3, 1939 from a cerebral hemorrhage. At the time of her death, Galloway would have been around 74 years of age and was the father of two adult sons. They were Lewis and Daniel. According to one article that I read, Mary was Galloway's second wife, while others implied she was the first. So I'm not sure if she was the mother of his two sons or not. Three years after Mary's passing, this is September 15th of 1942, Galloway married Mabel B. Lowry in Washington, D.C., he was 76 and she was 63 years old. Now, if you think he has a thing for younger women, wait till you hear this next one. He married once again on August 29, 1947 to Rosabelle Millsap. He was 80 years old and she was 30, a 50-year difference. That union lasted only three months, although their divorce wasn't finalized until January 25th of 1951. Just coincidentally, that was the same day that the news of his refusal to sell his home began to appear in the newspapers. In an interview with the Evening Star, he proclaimed, quote, I'm not going to get married again. I'm too old. What do you think? Will he be able to resist the temptation? Hmm... Well, old he may have been, but Galloway was still holding firm to his $85,000 asking price. But he may have been setting his sights too high. A spokesman for the Heck Company told the press that they had all the land that was needed to build their new store and were in no need of Reverend Galloway's parcel. And we've all seen this picture play out many times before. You know, a property owner refuses to sell their property, so the developers simply build right around their structure. Now, if you're curious, just do a quick search online for property holdouts, and it really shouldn't take you long to see some really notable examples. The reality was that Harrison Galloway was going up against a mighty big corporation. Who would win? You know, would the developers pay him what he wanted, or would they simply construct the mall around his property? Galloway commented, quote, I started to sell three years ago, but I changed my mind and decided to stay. And now I want my price. I won't sell cheap. Unquote. On January 31st, 1951, that's five days after the press began reporting on the story, the Reverend announced that they had agreed to his terms. Quote, A man, he said he was speaking for some Florida people, 
offered me $85,000 cash for my land Friday. He'll give me four months to vacate, too. He added, These Florida people said they'll pick me up Friday to go to the courthouse and close the deal. Unquote. Galloway agreed to the offer, but he noted that an Arlington attorney would be handling the deed transfer. Then he told a reporter, quote, I knew I'd get it. Yet for some reason, he never got it. And one could speculate as to what had gone wrong, but there was absolutely no mention made in the papers as to why the deal had collapsed. Fast forward to March 8th, and Galloway announced he was lowering his asking price to $55,000 in cash. That's about $650,000 today. He explained that he's doing so because, quote, the Lord will soon be calling for me, I think. He added that once he paid the taxes on the sale, he would use the remainder to, quote, buy a little house in Washington and wait for God's call. Luckily for Galloway, that call did not come quickly, but he was unable to sell the house for the $55,000 he was seeking. Then, on September 27th in 1951, it was announced that he had reached an agreement with Hecht. The selling price was $25,000. That's about $295,000 today. The sale was finalized after Galloway signed the deed transfer with a simple letter X. Almost immediately, work began on grading his front yard, and bulldozers were brought in to demolish his house. It was clearly time for Harrison Galloway to move out, but he had nowhere to go. And that's because his attorney, that's uh, William L. Houston, he was refusing to turn over the $18,879 that remained after taxes and legal fees were paid. Harrison Galloway may have been rich on paper, but he had absolutely no money to spend. He was a poor, rich man. The reality was that Houston was simply working in the best interests of his client. Because Reverend Galloway was an elderly man who had suddenly come into a large chunk of money, it seemed like every Tom, Dick, and Harry wanted a piece of the pie. This included two women who said they wanted to marry him, another who claimed to be a secretary, and numerous relatives that the Reverend hadn't had contact with in many years. So Attorney Houston concluded that the best way to keep Galloway from squandering his money was to simply keep it in a bank. Needless to say, Galloway got himself another lawyer and filed suit against William Houston. On Friday, October 19th in 1951, a hearing was held in Federal District Court in Washington, D.C. before Judge James R. Kirkland. And as you'll hear, Kirkland's name comes up quite a bit throughout the remainder of the story. Anyway, he carefully listened to arguments from both sides and then said, quote, I don't care if there are 60 women who want to marry him and 900 relatives who are interested in his money. If Mr. Galloway has the capacity to make a deed selling the property, he is entitled to the money, unquote. The judge noted not only Galloway's advanced age, but also that he was illiterate and perhaps most importantly, had no clear recollection of selling his home to Hecht. So Kirkland ordered an investigation be made to determine if Reverend Galloway had the, quote, mental capacity, unquote, to make such a decision. He said, quote, There is serious question as to whether this illiterate 86-year-old man had the capacity to make the deed. If it is determined that he had the capacity, I suppose he's entitled to the money, unquote. 
Then, one week later, the judge determined that Galloway did in fact lack the mental capacity to make such decisions. Consequently, the judge ordered that the funds be retained in the bank until a guardian could be appointed to safeguard them. A few days later, a petition was filed in the Arlington Circuit Court seeking the appointment of Galloway's 60-year-old son, Lewis, as the guardian of his father's estate. In that document, Lewis alleged that his father was, quote, mentally and physically incapable of properly managing his estate, unquote. Judge Walter T. McCarthy ruled that Reverend Galloway was unable to properly manage his estate, but in a surprising decision did not appoint his son Lewis as his guardian. You know, perhaps the fact that he hadn't seen his father in 53 years had something to do with the judge's decision. Instead, an Alexandria attorney was designated as the guardian for the Reverend's estate. Meanwhile, Andrew and Carol, one of Harrison Galloway's lawyers, filed papers in federal court requesting that the sale of the land to the Heck Company be voided. And that's because there was considerable doubt as to whether his client had the mental capacity to understand that he was signing away both his house and the land underneath it. In addition, it was felt that he did not receive a fair amount for his land. While Galloway insisted that he had never signed the deed that transferred the property, Mrs. Virginia Walton Burns, a notary public, she stated that she witnessed him signing the documents with his ex. In addition, Fred Cosnell, the county tax assessor, stated that he felt that Galloway had received a, quote, fair amount, unquote, for the sale of his property. Now, that suit would ultimately be thrown out by the judge, but right around the time that it was being argued in federal court, Reverend Galloway found himself back in the Arlington Circuit Court for a completely different reason. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. On Wednesday, November 7th of 1951, the now 86-year-old Galloway and 64-year-old Mrs. Rosetta Mills Lewis, a widow, arrived to obtain a marriage license. Having grown up in Arlington and known the Reverend since she was a child, they planned to marry the following Tuesday. However, court clerk H. Bruce Green, aware of the ruling on Galloway's mental capacity, refused to issue the marriage license, and that's why they were back in court. Informed that it would be several days before a judge would review Green's decision not to issue that license, the couple came up with an alternate plan. Since Mrs. Lewis was a resident of Washington, D.C., they would simply apply for a license there instead. And once again, they were refused. 
Instead of it being their wedding day, the two found themselves standing before Judge Kirkland on November 13th of 1951. Remember how I said his name would come up again? (laughs) Here he is. Anyway, he concluded that Reverend Galloway was, quote, of retarded mental development, unquote, and ordered that no marriage license be issued. But the two still had hope that after a judge heard their case back in Arlington, they would be allowed to marry. Well, that wasn't going to happen either. One day after Judge Kirkland denied them a license, Judge McCarthy upheld County Clerk Green's decision to deny the couple a marriage license. Well, not one to give up easily, Galloway went back to D.C. on November 20th and once again applied for a marriage license. And for the second Tuesday in a row, Judge Kirkland once again squashed their plans to marry. It was clear that there was absolutely no way the two could get married anywhere in the area surrounding Washington, D.C. Let's face it, Galloway's story was just too well known there. So they opted to head off to a place where they probably wouldn't be recognized. That place was Charlottesville, Virginia, which lies approximately 95 miles or 153 kilometers southwest of Arlington. There, on Thursday, February 28th of 1952, the two were finally married. But an examination of their license shows that they fibbed just a little bit with the information that they provided. Rosetta gave her address as a rural route in Charlottesville, even though she lived in D.C., while Reverend Galloway gave his age as a youthful 72. He just happened to knock off about 14 years. The two would stay married until his passing on Tuesday, May 24th of 1955 at the D.C. General Hospital. Reverend Harrison Galloway was 91 years of age. His estate was valued at $15,000. In his will, he accused his son Louis, whom he hadn't seen for all of those 53 years, of displaying, quote, disrespect to me during my lifetime, unquote. And to emphasize the sentiment, he bequeathed him a paltry $5. Now that's about $55 today. Ouch. The remainder of his estate was bequeathed to his wife, Rosetta. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. I just want to mention that I first started working on the story back in 2013, but while I was doing my research, I stumbled upon the Tunnel Joe home story. That's podcast number 69. I seem to recall that they were both printed on the same page of the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper. However, there were a lot of gaps in Galloway's story when I first began researching it, so it made more sense to set it aside and focus on the Tunnel Joe home story instead. And this happens to me quite a bit. I start working on what I think will be the next podcast, but when there are too many unanswered questions associated with the story, I just move on to something else. Well, all I can say is what a difference a decade makes. There's just so much more documentation available online now than there was when I first took up this story. So I resume work on the story probably about a week before the new year. And I have to tell you, within a few hours, I was able to locate the answers to nearly all of the questions I had back in 2013. I think the only one that I couldn't answer was his exact birth date. I knew he was born in 1865, but I found no documentation as to his exact birthday. Now, one thing that I didn't focus on in the story was Reverend Galloway's race. Excluding articles in the Afro-American newspaper and Jet magazine, I have to tell you 
every single article seemed to mention that he was, quote, a colored man. And while I have no proof, my hunch is that the combination of him being a post-Civil War African-American baby, uneducated, poor, I think all that played a large part in the courts declaring him mentally incompetent. But that's really just speculation on my part. Just a reminder to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast, and you can find it wherever you get all your other podcasts. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com, and there you will find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts out there. Anyway, I just want to welcome everyone to 2024, and I hope that this new year brings you happiness and health. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.